It is, uh, it is a real delight to be here, to have been here this weekend. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't say thank you to the church and to your pastor for your kindness, uh, both at the retreat and uh, here in Wyndham at the, the church itself. Um, I have been well cared for and uh, well fellowshipped with, and I am deeply grateful for that. This trip has been a real delight because it is something of a homecoming for me. I spent my high school years in the Boston area. I lived in Newton, just west of the city. Um, I uh, have known Rand Hummel at the Wilds in New England forever. We were students together. Uh, there are a number of people here in the church uh, that I've known for many years. Uh, as I said at camp, uh, there's a father and son here. Both of them were my students, uh, decades apart, and that tells you something. I've known Andrew and Colleen since they were students. Uh, Gabe is from my wife's home church in Pennsylvania. I picked up your, a copy of your hymn book and looked at the copyright page, and I know everybody named on that page. It's like uh, the connections here are just astonishing. Your pastor shared with me this morning something of the history of the church and the, uh, the providence of God in uh, giving you this facility and in your growth into it. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that, uh, by the way, this is not the church. You are the church. We all understand that. But uh, I, have, I have seen every evidence this weekend and this morning that you love God as indicated by the care you take in preparing and executing your worship. Um, and you love your neighbor. You have demonstrated that to me, and I have seen you demonstrate that to one another in ways that I won't point out publicly. So uh, I am just delighted to be here and deeply grateful for the refreshment and the care of this weekend. I love to teach, and I will be happy to get back home to my wife and uh, meet my students tomorrow afternoon in the classroom. But I'll be a little sad to leave, too. So um, I'll see if, if I can survive that disappointment um, over the next few days. Psalm 11 is a statement by David of first principles, big ideas, the most important stuff. 
It is also, I think, a psalm that is often misinterpreted. By the way, the clock up here says it's 425. Did I miss something? (laughs) We've been here longer than it feels. David begins this psalm with his thesis statement, his main idea, the, the, the foundation on which his decisions are made. And that is in the first half of the first verse. He says, in the Lord I take refuge. Now, um, I'm reading, as you are probably, from the ESV. The Christian Standard Bible says, in the Lord, I have taken refuge in the Lord. Uses a perfect tense in English. Means, this is a decision he's already made. Eh? He made up his mind a long time ago that he was going to take refuge in the Lord. And he demonstrates that throughout his life. You remember, uh, as Saul, the king, who has absolute power of life and death over him, except when he misses with the spear, Right? Saul is pursuing him in the wilderness. And David has the opportunity to kill him in a cave. And he doesn't do it. And when some of his men take vengeance on Saul's uh, family, relatives, and strangers do the same thing, David does not tolerate that. Saul is my enemy, yes, but I'm not going to be the one who takes him down. I will not have that. In the Lord I have put my trust. He has demonstrated that throughout his life. Of course, everybody knows about the very beginning event in which he's named. He takes on Goliath with five smooth stones and a slingshot and marches out onto the battlefield alone, (laughs) carrying his little sling, and looks him in the eyes and pronounces a sword song on him. Uh, Today, in sports, we call it trash talking. He looks him in the eye and he says, this is what I'm going to do to you. In the Lord, he puts his trust. By the way, Archaeologists have excavated some sling stones in Israel. Do you know how big they are? We think about these little, you know, they're about the size of a tennis ball. Right? One of those hits you between the eyes, and it's going to make an impression. David has demonstrated his entire life up to this point. We don't know exactly when this is. But he has demonstrated the truth of his life statement that in the Lord he puts his trust. Now, as I've said, for a a period of his life, he's running from Saul in the wilderness. He has gathered to himself a bunch of malcontents and uh, social misfits who are, as it happens, excellent in combat. And uh, he's leading this ragtag bunch in the wilderness, making sure that they have food to eat 
and uh, leading them into combat, not against Saul, his enemy, but against Israel's enemies, the Amalekites and so on. Uh, He has with him uh, a high priest of Israel. So he's got his own personal priest. And it appears from the account in the historical books that uh, this priest has brought with him the Urim and Thummim. And it's it's a little unclear what exactly those were, but uh, it was an instrument used to determine the will of God, apparently with yes and no questions. And uh, so David has his personal priest that he can consult to find out the will of God out there in the wilderness. And he does that multiple times. In the Lord, he puts his trust. Now, there is some thinking from the way this psalm sounds that uh, it is written during this time in the wilderness. And he has advisors. And they're telling him, remember they told him in the cave, Kill him. Put your spear through his heart. He's in the cave going to the bathroom. And he's indisposed. And he's not paying attention. And here's your chance. He's on a different sort of throne at the time, I suppose. And David says, I will not put my hand upon the Lord's anointed. He's the Lord's man. I'm going to let, let, let the Lord take care of it. And his counselors are saying, you need to do something. We're in danger. And they were. And he says, in the Lord, I put my trust. Now, he describes, apparently, the counsel he's getting. Um, he says, uh, end of verse 1. You say, you say. The subject and verb there are plural. So he's hearing this from a lot of people. Y'all are telling me. uh, I'm sorry, this is New Hampshire. You don't understand y'all, do you? Uh, Y'all are telling me. Matter of fact, in the South, y'all is not actually plural. I don't know if you knew that. It's singular. What's the plural of y'all? All All y'all. Yeah. And the best contraction in the English language is yaldiv. It's got two, com- two, two apostrophes in it. Y'all would have. Yaldiv. It's got three apostrophes. That's amazing. He says, y'all, y'all telling me. Flee like a bird to your mountain. Now a bird... Uh, There are powerful birds. The symbol of the United States, as we all know, is an eagle. A bald eagle, I will note. (laughs) There are powerful birds. But in the face of wild beasts, birds have basically one defense. They fly away. They, They go for altitude as a defense tactic. He says, flee like a bird. This is a largely defenseless animal. And he doesn't stand his ground and fight. He flies. 
A mountain in the scripture is a place of refuge. It's a a symbol of strength. Uh, Keep your finger here in Psalm 11 and pop over to 1 Samuel chapter 26. This is the incident in the cave that I've just been referring to. Psalm 26 Um, David is uh, speaking to Saul. This is, this is uh, after the cave event. And uh, Saul and his army are out there camped. And David's on a hillside. And he, he says in verse 20, Let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, from the temple in Jerusalem, out here in the wilderness. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. David has already used that metaphor of his situation. He says, I'm I'm like a partridge. Okay, a partridge is not a bald eagle. It's a defenseless little bird. He says, why are, you, why are you coming after me? I'm no danger to you. And his advisors are telling him, flee like a bird to your mountain. There was a time uh, in 1 Samuel 23, just before the passage we just noted, where David... Uh, goes out of the, the desert in the wilderness and goes up to the, the uh, strongholds of En Gedi. En Gedi uh, is an oasis over near the Dead Sea, just on the west side of the Dead Sea. There are waterfalls in there. It's a beautiful place, lush, right in the middle of the desert. And as you can imagine, all kinds of people would resort there, particularly people who wanted to be out of sight but wanted a water supply and date palms and, you know, uh, a way to survive in the wilderness. And David goes up there, and it says the strongholds of En Gedi. There's some thinking that this is uh, Masada, that famous mount, that mesa right near En Gedi, um, where Herod later built himself a wilderness castle. And uh, after the fall of Rome, after the fall of uh, Jerusalem to the Romans, a bunch of uh, Israelite soldiers uh, camped up there to protect themselves. And when the Romans were coming, they put up a siege ramp, and everybody knew it was just a matter of time. Uh, All of the Jews there at the top of Masada um, committed suicide rather than surrender to the Romans. It's a desolate place. By the way, for many years, the modern Israeli army, their soldiers were sworn in at Masada. They were taken up there in a bus, and they would take their oath of allegiance at Masada, and they would end that oath with, Masada shall not fall again. This is a desolate place. It's it's a place that can be defended. Now, the siege ramp changed all that, but, uh, but as it was in David's day, very much a defensible place. And so his advisors are saying, 
Go to the mountain. Go to the mountain. Why, why do we need to flee? There's danger. Verse 2. Behold. Now, that's an exclamation point. All right? Look. Pay attention. As my, one of my daughters would say, when she was trying to talk to us, when she was a little girl and wanted to have our undivided attention, she'd put both hands up on our cheeks and say, Daddy, listen to me. <laughs> Behold, the wicked bend the bow. Uh, the original language here says the wicked step on the bow. Any of you have experience in archery? Okay. Okay. You, you step on the bow here, and you bend it around your thigh so you can get some good leverage so that you can attach the string. And a bow isn't effective unless you've got some serious tension in it. With no tension in the bow, the arrow's not going anywhere. So the tighter, the stronger this bow is, the better weapon it is, the farther it can shoot. And so the wicked is bending the bow. They have uh, fitted their arrow to the string. In modern terms, we use firearms. Uh, they, just, they just racked the weapon. They just put a bullet in the chamber. Okay? That is an act of aggression. Um, they're planning something. I have friends who are police officers. They'll tell you, you point a firearm in the direction of a police officer, and they're not going to ask any, any more questions. They're not going to try to de-escalate. You have just signed your death warrant. That is an attack. You point the weapon, it's done. File that away in case you ever need it. <laughs> these, these enemies have committed themselves to aggression. They are hostile. They're coming after you. Your life is in imminent peril. And they plan to shoot. To shoot in the dark. At the upright in heart. To shoot in the dark. Uh, one English version says, to shoot from the shadows. Okay. Uh, that's ambush language. They're, they're trying to sneak attack. Okay. They're coming after you. And if you're not paying attention, you're going to be dead. This is a serious problem. And they, they summarize in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It's hopeless. It's hopeless. Notice that in your ESV, the quotation marks end at the end of verse 3. Who's speaking verse 3? The enemies, the godless, 
the faithless. These are not David's words. Some years ago, I, every so often I speak at Christian school conferences. I have workshops that I can give. And my university has a speakers bureau, which a lot of us are listed. And, and people who are running Christian school conferences or homeschool conferences around the country will request a given workshop. Some years ago, I spoke at a Christian school conference where verse 3 was the theme verse of the conference. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? I didn't have the heart to tell them how misguided that was. They're thinking, the secularists are trying to break down our culture and steal our country and steal our children, and we got to do something. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with being informed. I don't think there's anything wrong with putting your children under the, the tutelage of teachers who believe God and his word. I don't think there's anything wrong with taking them out from under the influence of those who would destroy their souls if given a chance. And by the way, they're really good at it. But to pant? To, to speak of the situation as hugely frustrating? What can we do? Ah! No, my friends. No. David does not leave us here with frustration. I find it interesting um, that... Uh, David finds this speech incomprehensible. 1B, I skipped over it. How can you say this? How can you talk like this? Now, what's interesting about that is he doesn't dispute the accuracy of what they're saying. He never says, ah, there are no enemies. There are no threats. They're not planning anything devious. You people are imagining things. You're hearing things go bump in the night. He doesn't dispute any of it. But he still says, how can you say this? this what you're saying doesn't make any sense to me at all. And why is that? Foray. Yahweh, the Lord, you notice in your ESV or in any other English version, the word Lord here is spelled with all capital letters, and that's an indication it's the Hebrew word Yahweh, or we don't know exactly how it was pronounced because the vowels haven't survived in the text. But uh, this is the Lord's personal name. Okay. I say this with the deepest reverence. This is his first name. What we would call his first name. His personal name. And he invites us to call, us, call him by his first name. 
That's why if you call me Dr. Olinger, I will correct you. If God invites his people to call him by his first name, what business do we have putting walls up between us and our fellow believers? Okay, if our, my fellow believer is a student, for purposes of propriety, we'll do the doctor thing. Sure. This is a name that the Lord uses of himself um, as the covenant-keeping God. It has at its root the basic idea of existing forever, of eternality, of consistency, of not being flighty or changeful. This is a God who is always the same. You can rely on him. He keeps his promises. And you are welcome in his presence. By the way, in a, in an, I say an accident of history. There are no accidents in history. But in an irony of history. That the translators, a couple of hundred years before Christ, who translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, um, I'm going to have to back that sentence up and say another one first, okay? So forgive me. The Jews were afraid of taking the name of the Lord their God in vain. And that's out of respect for him. So they decided the best way to ensure that you won't take the, way, the name of the Lord in vain is never to use it. We won't say the word. That way we'll never say it in vain. And so instead of saying Yahweh, when they came to this word in their scripture, they would say the word Adonai, which is the Lord. It's, it's a title rather than a name. And that was the practice. So, back to my scholars who translated the Hebrew scripture into Greek. They chose to use the Greek word Lord when they translated it. So instead of saying a name, instead of writing a name in Greek, Yahweh, they wrote the word Lord. Um and as a suppose you were to come after me after the service and say, "So Dan, I say, mm -mm, Doctor Olinger, what did I just do? I put up a wall. I held you at arm's length. Okay. Title instead of name. This is an important concept." God says, I am Yahweh. You come to me. I am faithful. I keep my promises. You come to me. And use my name. Not, not in vain. Not casually. O-M-G, right? Use my name. But use it with respect. And they say, out of respect, we refuse to use your name. You see what just happened? 
They're holding God at arm's length when he's come to them ready to for an embrace. Why do I say all that? Well, in all the modern English versions, almost all, they follow that practice and they render this word in, as Lord, title, not name, in all caps. The Lord is in his holy temple. No, that's not the image at all. The Lord is in his holy temple. And he is, uh, uh, he is Yahweh. We're on a first name basis. I call him my father. And Jesus says, call him Abba. That's, that's baby talk. Abba, Abba, Abba. Call him Abba. And the, the Pharisees are scandalized by that. Don't you respect God? Absolutely. And I also love him. And I am welcome in his presence. Now, if your Abba is in his holy temple, what do you have to fear? We're not denying that there are evil people out there. We're not denying that they have evil plans and that they will execute those plans if they are able. And sometimes in the providence of God, he allows evil people to execute their plans and he allows hard times to come to his people, the church. But Abba is in his holy temple. I have nothing to fear from that. Um, by the way, uh, there's an Old Testament prophet who comes several centuries later who, who quotes David's line here, the Lord is in his holy temple. Anybody know who that is? It's Habakkuk. By the way, someday when you're in heaven, you're going to run into Habakkuk. And he's going to say, how do you like my book? That, that's going to be awkward if you haven't read his book. <laughs> Will there be awkward in heaven? I don't know. But it wouldn't hurt to go ahead and read the book. The mother of a friend of mine in college, dear old saint, uh, she read that the saints sing the song of Moses at the throne of the Lamb. And so she memorized Deuteronomy 32 so she'd know the words when she got to heaven. That's good thinking. Habakkuk 2.20. I'd ask you to turn there, but it might take you the rest of the morning to find it. In my ESV, it's page 786. The last verse of chapter 2. Habakkuk has confronted Yahweh. He has said, uh, Why are you letting these evil things happen? Israel is evil, and you're not doing anything about it. And God says, Don't worry. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to use the Babylonians to come in here and deal with the sinfulness of, of my people. And Habakkuk says, how can you do that? They're worse than we are. 
and he says in chapter 2, verse 1, I'm going to stand right here, and I'm going to I'm going to wait for an answer from God because I don't find this situation acceptable at all. This doesn't make any sense to me at all. And it's remarkable to me that Habakkuk does not become a smoking crater when he says that. The Spirit inspires him to say that. And God says, okay, I'll answer your question. Um. And in verse 20, the end of this chapter, he says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Therefore, what's our response? Let all the earth keep silence before him. God's in charge, my friend. He knows what he's doing. He is aware of all things. He allows difficult things to happen, but he is nowhere, anywhere else but in charge. Um, The word uh, back in Psalm 11, the name Yahweh in verse 4 is in the emphatic position in this sentence both times it's used. It's like he's saying, Uh, Who's in his holy temple? Yahweh is. Do you see what a difference this makes, David says? Why am I going to be living in fear of people who are trying to kill me? I I knew of a well-known preacher years ago who was preaching against some corruption in his town. And some of the corrupt people in the town issued some death threats against him. Said they were going to kill him. And he said, you can't threaten me with heaven. (laughs) Yahweh's in his holy temple. His uh, holy temple. What does holy mean? It doesn't mean righteous. Righteous means righteous. Holy means unequaled, unique. Separate from it, in a class by himself. Michael Jordan. Okay, I'm not going to get into the LeBron versus Michael fight for you basketball people. Do I look like I'm interested in basketball? Come on. Michael Jordan, class by himself. Pele, class by himself. What's that Japanese baseball player's name? He's hitting home runs and pitching shutouts. Otani, is that his name? Class by himself. The Lord is in his holy temple. There is no other temple like this temple. And it's not because gold and silver. When the... When the Israelites are rebuilding the temple after they return from Babylon, they're a little upset, Haggai chapter 2, because this temple isn't going to be as fancy as Solomon's temple, and everybody knows it. And there are even some old men there who remember Solomon's temple from all those years before, and they're pointing that out. And that's kind of discouraging to the workers. And... Haggai comes to them with a word from the Lord and says, "Uh, okay, this isn't going to be as fancy as the last temple. I know that. You know that. 
He doesn't play games with his people and say, it's going to be just as good. He says, I know that. That's obvious. He says, you want silver and gold to make your temple great? I put the silver and gold in the mountains. I know where it is. He says, the silver and gold is mine. I can, I can show you where it is, and you can have all you want. But that's not how this temple's going to be great. He says, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, and I'm going to make this temple greater than Solomon's temple. And 500 years later, uh, a carpenter and his wife bring a little baby to this temple to be circumcised, dedicated. And two prophets... A man and a woman say, this child is unlike any other child. And years later, that child as an adult will teach and heal in the temple courtyard, Solomon's porch. And he'll go into that courtyard and clean out the money changers and say, don't make my father's house a a place to cheat people by raising the prices of money changing. And not long after that, one dark Friday afternoon, the veil of that temple is going to be torn in two from heaven to earth, and the way to the Holy of Holies is going to be open to everyone. God says silver and gold. (laughs) Come on, that's trivial stuff. The Lord is in his temple, and it's unlike any other temple in the world. Primarily, not not because of gold and silver, but because the Lord is there. That's where he sits. And there's no one like him. His throne is in heaven, verse 4. It's up here. Now, there's an interesting tension going on here, because... He's not saying Adonai, the Lord. He's saying Yahweh, first name. Hey? This one who is so close to you, who is Abba to us, in whose presence we are welcome, he's up here. Any of you who've been in the military know that the high ground is the ground you want to be, you want to hold. You have all kinds of advantages on the high ground. You can see much farther than all the people down there who are coming at you can see. You have a a clearer picture of the whole situation. It's much easier to shoot down than to shoot up. Um, You want to hold the high ground. Now, what's ironic about all this is that God doesn't really need a tactical advantage. He's omnipotent. He wins from any position on the battlefield. He owns the battlefield. It's not like the high ground gives him a stronger advantage than he would have otherwise. But David still says he's got the high ground. He's got the high ground in every way possible. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. His eyes see, verse 4. He sees. Remember when Elijah met the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? (laughs) And he engineers, he, he proposes a contest between the two gods. 
And the prophets of Baal agree to it. Never agree to terms set down by a divine prophet. It's not going to turn out well. And you know the story. I won't go into the details. But the prophets of Baal are trying to get the fire to fall from Baal in heaven down on their sacrifice. And they're cutting themselves and they're praying. And they go on for hours through the heat of the day trying to get Baal to answer. And you remember what Elijah says to them? Maybe he's out of the office. Maybe he's on a trip. The King James says, maybe he's covering his feet. You know what that means. Maybe he's going to the bathroom and he can't come help you right now. Yahweh's eyes see. He's paying attention. He's not distracted. He knows and he loves and he cares. His eyelids test. You know how you squint when you're trying to focus on something? Okay, he doesn't have vision problems. He he doesn't need to correct his vision by squinting. But his eyelids, uh, David is using metaphorical language here. It's like he's squinting. He's paying attention. You have his full attention. He's not uncaring or inattentive about the real danger that the enemy poses to his people. The Lord tests the righteous, verse 5. He tests the righteous. This is a word test uh, that uh, is used of uh, assaying ore, precious metal. You're you're testing it to see how pure it is. Um, You're determining the value of something. You're, You're determining what's really going on. Is this silver plated or is it solid silver? God is testing the righteous. Now, that's, that's an interesting concept because uh, we see that term used often in the Scripture. Most famously, uh, Moses writes in Genesis that the Lord tested Abraham and said, Take your son, your only son whom you love, and take him to a mountain I'll show you, Mount Moriah, the current Temple Mount, and sacrifice him there. Now, God had promised that he would make Abraham's seeds seed like the stars of the heaven and the sand of the seashore, and that this promise would be fulfilled through Isaac. And now he says, go kill Isaac. What was Abraham thinking? We know what he was thinking. The New Testament tells us, the book of Hebrews, what was he thinking? I'm going to kill my son. I'm going to kill him, and God's going to raise him from the dead. Now, I don't believe there had been in all of history to that point any instance where someone had resurrected from the dead. Abraham had no 
no reason to think that that was possible. But he said, okay, God, God said, in Isaac shall my seed be called, stars of the heaven, sand of the seashore. I believe him. He's told me to kill this boy. I'm going to do what he says. And I guess he's going to do something he's never done before. He's going to raise him from the dead. This is a man who believes. Now, the word that Moses uses there is the Lord tests Abraham. And the angel of the Lord in the middle of that sacrifice Abraham has raised the knife to kill his son, and the angel of Yahweh grabs his wrist and says, Stop! He says, Now I know. (laughs) Now I know that you'll obey me. And you go, Seriously? Did you not know before? Did you have to put Abraham to the test? So that you would know, how can you be omniscient and not know something? Uh, It's pretty obvious what's going on there. God does know. He does know. When he tests us, it is not so that he will learn something that he didn't know before. It is so that we will know. And so that others will know how serious we are about this whole believing in God business. It is important for us to face difficult choices and make the right choice for our own growth and for evidence to others that we're serious about this. We mean business. So the Lord tests the righteous. We know this principle well, and we believe it. We just have trouble believing it with with spiritual warfare. We all know... uh, that you don't win the state football championship by lying on the couch and eating ice cream. You want to be a champion. You got to pay the price. And your coach is going to make you run wind sprints and blocking drills and run play after play after play and run laps If you're a boxer, your coach is going to make you do road work and he's going to sit on the back of the pickup truck with a bullhorn and yell at you the whole time you're running down the road. And you're going to hate him. Nobody loves the coach during practices. And if you've ever been on a team I've been on a number of sports teams, and none of them were ever any good. But we were as miserable during practice as the championship team, so I think I know what I'm talking about. You hate the coach 
during the practices. But when you win the championship, so I am told, <laughs> who do you raise up on your shoulders and run around the field with? It's the coach. Because you know that you wouldn't have made it here without him. It was the pain that enabled the game. Now, God puts us through trials. And he does that not because he's punishing us for not being perfect. I mentioned this at the retreat. You are perfect. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you've been saved, you are in Christ. God looks at you and he sees his son, and in his son he is well pleased. You are perfect. You have been forgiven of all of your sins, including the rest of them. And God is propitiated. He is not angry. He is grieved when we continue to sin, as we all do. But those sins have already been covered by the blood of Christ. It's an important part of the transaction. So, he's not angry at you. He's not, he's not thinking about you like some teachers think about their students. How many times am I going to have to tell you before you listen to me? The reply to every student email in college is, that question is answered in the syllabus. It's in the syllabus. I should have it just a hot key that says, it's in the syllabus, bonehead, period. <laughs> Read the syllabus. God doesn't do that. He puts us through pressure in order to make us more like Christ. That's way better than being the state champion. That's way better. What do people endure to be great in this or that sport or other activity? This is way better than that. The Lord tests the righteous. He is giving you an opportunity to become more like Christ and to demonstrate the value of that to people who are watching you. Now, what do you suppose they think when they see you say, what are we going to do? I'm so scared. If these people win, this is the most important election of our lifetime. They say that every time. Why? Because they want you to be afraid. Because they benefit either with power or with money when you're afraid. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is testing the righteous. He's working toward his glory and your good. Verse 5. His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Sure, there are evil people and God knows about them and they are not in a good place. They're in extreme danger. And God, because he is gracious and powerful, is giving them time. Well, the longer he waits, the stronger he, they get. <laughs> they don't get nearly as strong as he is. They'll never be close. 
I'd say. They're like Evil Knievel trying to jump the Grand Canyon, but half of you have never heard of Evil Knievel, so. <laughs> the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Their time will come. And by the way, we don't wish for them to be destroyed. We wish for God to change them the same way he changed us. I saw a thing on the internet a while back that said, Paul entered heaven to the cheers of those he murdered. That's how grace works. So David says, let him rain coals on the wicked, verse 6. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Burning coals, one version says. Fiery coals, another version. Uh, Hot coals. Fire and sulfur. Uh, Is that a reference to Sodom and their fate? Fire and brimstone from God out of heaven? That's the end of the beast in Revelation chapter 14. It's the end of the wicked at the great white throne in Revelation chapter 20 and 21. The Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's not the kind of person who's just waiting with glee to rain down fire and brimstone. He loves everyone with his image including the really bad ones. And without getting into all the details of Calvinism and Arminianism and uh, free will and foreknowledge and election and all of that, God makes it clear that he wants uh, all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so we don't take delight in anticipating fire and brimstone. But we know that that will eventually happen and that when it happens, God will be good and he will act in full knowledge of the hearts of those who are under his judgment. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The Bible says that no one can see God's face and live. Uh, Moses was apparently the, the lone exception in his day. But in fact, the day will come when we will behold his face and we will live eternally. And that offer is made to any who will come. In Psalm 27, David says, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. We shall see his face. And in the face of that, how can we despair in the face of God's enemies. Let's run around like crazy people. 
because the situation's worse than it's ever been. Every generation has said that. Let's trust in the powerful, ascendant, omnipotent God who is our Father, who knows and loves and cares for his people and strengthens them through hard times. I would like to close this morning by reading the first few verses of Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. I'd like to close in prayer and end that prayer with Aaron's blessing over his people. Let's pray. Father, how short-sighted and faithless we are to fail to trust you in hard times, to see those hard times as evidences of threat or of your inattention or carelessness. Father, may we run to you in hard times and trust you to work through those things the Christ-likeness that you have promised to bring us to. We know that we will be short of perfect likeness to Christ at the end of our journeys here. And we know that in an instant you will bring us fully, completely, to the finish line of Christ-likeness, as you have promised. May we trust you in that. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.